Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, George Costanza's Guide to Better Living by Mike Kerrigan. Then an article, How Cannabis May Help the Elderly by Aaron Greenstein and Haley Solomon. Mark Oppenheimer wrote an article, America Forgot the 1918 Flu. Will We Also Forget COVID? And then an article by Richard Rubin, Men's Names Lead on Joint Tax Returns. And we'll follow that up with one more article by Megan Cox Gurdon. Simple condolences are underrated. So let's begin with today's first article, George Costanza's Guide to Better Living. In the classic Seinfeld episode, The Opposite, George Costanza laments during lunch his terrible instincts and their resulting life choices. Hearing this, Jerry Seinfeld observes, If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Inspired, George approaches an attractive woman dining alone and against all instinct tries honesty. My name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. She agrees to a date. Such wit and wisdom. So what if it's merely sitcom dialogue? The cannonade behind George Costanza's newfound approach to living has lit the western sky for centuries. Support is found in the intellectual artillery of St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Ignatius of Loyola, and C.S. Lewis. In the 13th century, Aquinas wrote that original sin disrupted man's natural predisposition to virtue. If fallen man no longer invariably knows and wants what's good for him, Recognition of this fact is an important step towards right action. In acknowledging how often he was his own worst enemy, George Costanza filled the angelic doctor's prescription. Centuries later, British writer C.S. Lewis advanced his thought in mere Christianity. Self-awareness wasn't enough. Rather, if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. Lewis knew good and bad habits led men in opposite directions. The rational reaction to realizing a compass is broken is twofold. First, stop in your tracks. Second, find true north. George Costanza took both steps. Between Aquinas and Lewis was Ignatius, a keen 16th century student of human nature. Like Aquinas, Ignatius knew man was a creature of imperfect tendencies. Like Lewis, he knew frequent about-faces were in order. The Ignatian practice of agere contra, or acting against, set forth in Rule 6 of his Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, showed the surest way to Lewis's right road. To Ignatius, the path to overcome desolation like aridity in prayer was more prayer, not less. He knew strength often comes from doing more of something precisely when you want to do less of it. Aguirre Contra encapsulates 
George Costanza's Do the Opposite philosophy. Identify the problem, halt and turn, and make haste in the opposite direction of bad instinct. No wonder George's contrarian philosophy worked so well for him. He was standing on the shoulders of giants of Western thought. And now, how cannabis may help the elderly. During our residency training in psychiatry at the Boston VA Medical Center between 2017 and 2021, we witnessed an arresting trend. Cannabis had been legal in Massachusetts for nearly a decade, but seemingly overnight, many of the center's elderly Vietnam veteran patients started to declare their deep allegiance to cannabis use. Maybe it took a decade for them to get hooked on weed, or perhaps it took that long for pot smokers to feel comfortable coming out of the closet. Whatever the case, the more we asked, the more we realized that our older patients were using cannabis, and they were using it a lot. They were hardly alone. According to data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, cannabis use among Americans over 65 increased from 0.4% in 2006 to 4.2% in 2018. Like other older adults whose cannabis use has been documented, our patients were more likely to turn to it for medicinal purposes, such as treating pain, insomnia, or psychiatric symptoms than for recreation. They use cannabis in many forms, as salves to soothe arthritis pain, tinctures to help with difficulty falling asleep, joints to relieve the stress of chronic PTSD, and edibles to heal the anxiety of day-to-day life. Our clinical training had given us skills for treating chemical dependence. We had psychotherapeutic methods to address addictive behaviors, medications to decrease cravings. But we found ourselves in a difficult position. How are we to discuss the risks and possible benefits of cannabis with an elderly patient population that held such strong beliefs about it, largely based on anecdotes about how it could treat rare diseases or improve quality of life? Cannabis is a Schedule I substance according to federal law, which means that, by definition, it has no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Other examples of Schedule I substances include heroin and LSD. Because of this classification, cannabis remains difficult to study and there is no definitive resource to inform a doctor's clinical approach to its use. To bridge this knowledge gap, we took a deep dive into the medical literature, surveying the available evidence regarding the safety and efficacy of cannabis use in the elderly. We ultimately published a paper in the Harvard Review of Psychiatry, highlighting many areas of concern, including cannabis' potential to interact with commonly prescribed medications, such as the blood-thinning medication warfarin, its association with an increased risk of injuries and motor vehicle crashes, and its potential to impair cognition, specifically attention, memory, executive function, and psychomotor function. Our research led us to conclude that older adults should use cannabis with caution, but it did not lead us to dismiss its usefulness out of hand. In fact, we learned of one very promising application for the substance. 
One of our teaching hospitals, McLean Hospital, was studying a pharmaceutical-grade version of cannabis called Marinol to treat agitation prescribed by advancing dementia. Marinol could possibly have a calming and soothing effect without many of the risks carried by pharmaceuticals typically used in patients with end-stage major neurocognitive disorders. We felt a personal connection to this research. Both of our grandmothers are survivors of the Holocaust, and during the pandemic, we compared stories about their faltering health and declining memories. During this period, Aaron's 96-year-old grandmother, Marion Milklin, a very stoic personality throughout her life, began to display the same kind of severely agitated behavior that we had studied so meticulously during our geriatric psychiatry fellowships. Most noticeable were Mrs. Micklin's flashbacks. In the final months of her life, she began reliving unimaginably painful memories from Auschwitz and the Nazi labor camp, memories she had suppressed for nearly 80 years. She would yell out for her parents and siblings who were killed in the early 1940s, and she would confuse her medical team and family members for Nazis. Most traumatizing was that she confused her phlebotomist with the notorious Dr. Mengele, who had tortured her at Auschwitz, begging him to stop taking her blood. Her condition seemingly unresponsive prescribed medications for dementia, and Aaron's family wondered, could cannabis help her? Approximately 6.5 million Americans, or one in nine people aged 65 or older, are living with Alzheimer's dementia. Agitation, aggression, wandering, delusions, hallucinations, mood disorders, and repetitive vocalizations are very common symptoms as the disease progresses. There are no FDA-approved pharmaceuticals to treat the condition, so when behavioral techniques fail, doctors use off-label medications such as antidepressants, mood stabilizers, or antipsychotics. Antipsychotics become necessary when the patient risks harming themselves or others due to the severity of the agitation, but they are only modestly effective and carry a black box warning for increasing the risk of death in this population. Recent research suggests that cannabis may help to relieve agitation by regulating neurotransmitters, reducing brain inflammation, and improving circadian rhythm disturbances seen in dementia. It is thought that cannabis binds with receptors located in the same regions of the brain implicated in dementia agitation. A study in mice further found that THC, the major psychoactive component in cannabis, may prevent the harmful plaques associated with Alzheimer's from accumulating between neurons. Further research may yet determine whether cannabis has the potential not only to treat Alzheimer's symptoms, but to halt the disease progression. Mrs. Micklin's family members scoured the Internet for answers and happened upon an article detailing the original impetus behind the clinical trials at, of Marinol at McLean Hospital. The Spire family in Massachusetts had gone through a remarkably similar ordeal when their family's patriarch, Alex Spire, also a Holocaust survivor, had dementia. 
They found that cannabis edibles were the only thing that calmed Mr. Spire when he relived his Holocaust trauma. The Spire's Family Foundation funded the Marinol study with the hope that others might benefit from the treatment. After consulting with the Spire family, Mrs. Micklin's family decided to give cannabis a shot. Marinol was out of the question because of cost and access, so the family resorted to sourcing cannabis through one of Denver's many dispensaries. After reviewing dosing strategies used in clinical trials and speaking at length with a local Denver bud tender, under Aaron's direction, they administered a small dose of marijuana in dissolving strip form. Within minutes, her flashback stopped. Regular dosing allowed for the final phase of her life to be peaceful. There is still much to learn about how cannabis may be safely incorporated into the treatment of dementia patients. Dosing protocols haven't been established and must be carefully calibrated to avoid delirium, seizures, falls, or other dangerous outcomes. Marinol, the FDA-approved formulation of cannabis, is currently approved only for a limited set of indications and is prohibitively expensive for non-approved uses. But our study of the medical literature, together with countless anecdotes from older patients and experiences with our own families, suggests that cannabis may be useful in areas of clinical practice that have yet to be defined, such as those suffering from agitated dementia at the end of life. Research on cannabis hasn't kept pace with public interest in the substance, and doctors have been left largely in the dark. We need a nuanced, evidence-based perspective so that we can safely guide our older patients and others to the best medical uses of America's favorite herbal remedy. And now the article, America Forgot the 1918 Flu. Will we also forget COVID? My grandmother, Walter Kirshner, was born in Philadelphia in 1910, the sixth of eight children. His wife, my grandmother, Rebecca, was also born in Philadelphia in 1907. She was one of ten children. Most of my grandparents and great-aunts and uncles, all born between 1900 and 1913, lived into their 80s or 90s. I knew them well. In other words, I was raised among old people who, as young people, had seen their world rocked by the flu. When they were children or young adults, the Spanish flu pandemic hit their hometown harder than anywhere else in the United States. On just one day, October 18, 1918, 759 people died of flu in Philadelphia, according to John Berry's definitive history, The Great Influenza. That same month, the month my grandfather turned eight, Mr. Barry writes that the Bureau of Child Hygiene publicly begged for neighbors to take in, at least temporarily, children whose parents were dying or dead. The response was almost nil. Bodies decomposed in their beds with no one to remove them. The poor and immigrants, like my grandparents' families, were hit hardest. So it stands to reason, doesn't it, that some of my family got sick or watched the neighbor or schoolmate get sick or die. But I don't know for sure. Despite having spent thousands of collective hours with my grandfather and grandmother, with my uncles Gabriel and Sidney and Henry, and the other Henry, 
my aunts Nettie and Ruth and Ann, and numerous others, not to mention their spouses, all Philadelphians, I never heard any of them mention the Spanish flu. Not once. That absence has me wondering how Americans will remember COVID-19 once it is finally behind us or when it has become a manageable nuisance. Right now, it's hard to imagine it will be regarded as anything less than a generation-defining phenomenon, like the anti-war protests of the late 1960s, the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, or the attacks of 9-11. But I think it's just as likely that it will disappear from our consciousness as the influenza pandemic of 1918-19 did. The Spanish flu was deadlier than COVID-19 and is and was more likely to kill those in the prime of life, yet it has been largely obliterated from historical memory. As Alfred W. Crosby noted in his 1989 book, America's Forgotten Pandemic, the Spanish flu was omitted from all the great mid-century American history textbooks, including volumes by Samuel Eliot Morrison, Henry Steele Cominger, Richard Hofstetter, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., and C. Van Woodward, all men who had lived through the pandemic. The one major textbook that Crosby could find that mentioned the pandemic, Thomas A. Bailey's The American Pageant from 1956, gave it one sentence, and Crosby says, understates the total number of deaths due to it by at least one half. Today, a United States history student is still unlikely to learn about the 1918-19 pandemic. The latest, 17th edition of the American Pageant by David M. Kennedy and Elizabeth Cohen mentions the pandemic on two pages. Popular culture did at least as poor a job in commemorating it. The Spanish flu killed perhaps 50 million people worldwide. The equivalent, as a percentage of the population, of 200 million people today. Yet there is no great film about the Spanish flu pandemic, and the literature is sparse. Catherine Ann Porter's novel, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, 1939, and William Maxwell's novel, They Came Like Swallows, 1937, offer the principal treatment by major writers. Then there is John O'Hara's short story, The Doctor's Son, which ran in The New Yorker in 1935, and Willa Cather's minor 1922 novel, One of Ours. At the time, people remarked upon this gap in the literature. Novels, one would have thought, would have been devoted to influenza, epic poems to typhoid, odes to pneumonia, Virginia Woolf wrote in her 1926 essay on being ill. But she was lamenting the general imitation to illness in literature, which she attributes to the fact that fiction writers concern themselves with affairs of the mind rather than the ordeals of the body. The flu pandemic was less than a decade in the past, yet it did not seem to loom larger in her mind than typhoid or any other malady. Nobody seems to have a good answer for why the extraordinary worldwide die-off of 1918-19 imprinted so little on our collective imagination. The whole issue of how quickly it was forgotten is one that historians have not really grappled with, says Naomi Rogers, who teaches the history of science at Yale. 
John Barry concurred. No satisfactory explanation, he wrote to me in an email, when I asked about this forgetfulness. No research that I know on its causes, he added. The best theory that I've encountered is that pandemics simply couldn't compare with World War I. The whole civilized world turning on itself in an orgy of warfare was more traumatizing than an act of nature. It demanded more of a response. It was an event that poets cared about and that political leaders had answers for, the Treaty of Versailles, the League of Nations. It seemed like something mankind could, with diligence, prevent from recurring. Acts of God are, I think, more forgettable than our own acts. Even though we can mount a response to pandemics, immunologists working overtime made great strides in response to the pandemic of 1918-19, even if they did not have the tools that COVID scientists had a century later. There is an inherent futility in the face of disease. It will always be with us in a way that we dare to dream war and human cruelty might not. In that light, I wonder if we'll look back on the present moment and remember Black Lives Matter and the polarization around the Trump presidency, the war in Ukraine, and the rise and fall of Twitter rather than COVID-19. If that's the case, I would say we have cause to celebrate. Past generations' reluctance to talk about influenza, not to mention diseases like polio, which terrified my parents in their youth and whose effects are still visible in the limps and disabilities of old people I know, should not be read, I think, as stoicism or avoidance, but as adaptability. Forgetting is one of the great human gifts. We cannot reasonably carry with us all the wounds of our past especially since, alas, there is always more suffering around the bend. And now the article, Men's Names Lead on Joint Tax Returns. IRS doesn't care, but habit is strong, taxpayer, spouse. When calculating federal income taxes, it makes absolutely no difference which spouse is listed first on a joint tax return. An opposite-sex couple can put the man's name first, start with the woman's name, list them in order of income, go alphabetically, or begin with the spouse who woke up earlier last Tuesday. It literally doesn't matter one cent. But there are two lines for names on Form 1040. Somebody has to go first and somebody has to go second. Maybe knowing something about the order we choose can help us make a deduction about ourselves. Do men open the door and politely let their wives go first, or do they charge ahead? Guys, it's the latter. According to a first-of-its-kind assessment from researchers from the United States Treasury Department and the University of Michigan, men's names were listed first on 88% of joint returns filed by opposite-sex married couples in 2020. That figure has trickled down a little since 1996, when nearly all returns, 97%, listed the man's name first. The gender equality movement of the past few decades changed the composition of boardrooms, universities, operating rooms, and legislatures. It has barely budged the manager's The Man Goes First convention on the 1040. Among couples filing jointly for the first time in 2020, 76% put the man's name first. There is now someone in America with the actual title of Second Gentleman. 
That is Douglas Emhoff, a lawyer who was married to Vice President Kamala Harris and who has slowed his career down after her election. Yet on their tax return, the second gentleman is number one, while Ms. Harris is effectively vice taxpayer. The vice president's office did not respond to a request for comment. A few other 2020 presidential candidates seem like the exceptions that prove the rule. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and former Governor Steve Bullock disclosed joint tax returns during the campaign with women listed first. In the overwhelming number of cases, however, the bottom line is that men go on the top line. I'm in the South, so probably 99% of the time, the default is to put the husband first on the return, said Jan Lewis, an accountant in Jackson, Mississippi. A client once got upset, she said, because their correspondence referred to taxpayer and spouse when they are both spouses. I thought, well, okay, she has a point, Ms. Lewis said, but legally, in the eyes of the IRS, it's taxpayer and spouse. Ms. Lewis, whose name is second to her husband's on her own tax returns, does have to remember to start with her spouse's name when making her own quarterly estimated tax payments to the IRS. That's because bureaucratic inertia is strong, too. Taking turns might work for loading the dishwasher, but it's a mess for tax filing. The Internal Revenue Service instructions for Form 1040 include a tip for taxpayers. If you are filing a joint return with, your, with the same spouse as last year, put your names and social security numbers in the same order as last year. It isn't a requirement, just some friendly neighborhood advice from the government to ward off disaster, like when they tell you to carry bear spray at Yellowstone National Park. If you've paid any attention to IRS backlogs and difficulties processing mountains of paper over the past few years, you definitely don't want to do anything that might risk your tax return being lost in the agency's labyrinth of sadness. Fewer than 2% of married couples switch who goes first from year to year. Marilyn holds Patty, who runs an art business in western Massachusetts with her husband of 48 years, Tom Patty, said she always goes second on the tax forms, though she has no idea how that came about. She says she owns 51% of their business. In an interview, the couple bantered about the origins of the order. Maybe because he's older, she said, laughing. Mr. Patty cracked that maybe his wife had been, had put him first to make him more visible to the government. If they come after somebody, I'll be the first to go, he joked. She's the smart one. Of course, that isn't how IRS enforcement actually works. Michigan economics professor Joel Slemrod and his colleagues have been working on broader research about gender biases in the tax system when they realized they had enough information to generate some data about whose name goes first. Researchers found that women are more likely to be listed first in returns filed by younger people. Men's chances of being listed first increase along with their share of the couple's wages. Women first tax returns are most common in the District of Columbia, where fewer than 80% of opposite-sex married couples list the man's name first. Among states, Vermont, Oregon, Maine, and Alaska are the only places with women first rates above 15%. 
At the other end are three states where man first returns exceed 90%, Iowa, New Jersey, and Utah. Mr. Slemrat, the Michigan researcher, has been married for 42 years. I am primary, always have been, and it is also true that I am mostly in charge of the finances and I 100% do the taxes, he said. I never considered switching. And now today's final article. Simple condolences are underrated, and this one is by Megan Cox Gordone. Both my parents died in the past few months, leaving me an orphan in midlife. As I am an only child, they took with them the remembered archives of their marriage and my girlhood. The loss is tremendous. The language to market isn't. I am so sorry, people say. You are in my thoughts, or, for short, my condolences. I used to think that simple statements like these, which seem like platitudes, showed a lack of sensitivity and imagination. I thought that sympathy needed to be offered through personalized language that reflected the character of the dead person and anticipated the state of mind of the survivor. In years gone by, I spent ages at my desk straining to come up with something fresh to say to a grieving friend and once or twice felt so inadequate to the task that I didn't send anything. How I regret that now. Until my parents died, I had no idea how welcome simplicity can be. A statement such as, our hearts are with you, doesn't feel canned when your heart is aching. It feels like consolation. Traditional condolences convey that the thing that's happened is so profound that novelty is beside the point. In their accessibility, the standard phrases acknowledge the universality of loss. And given their formulaic nature, they make possible a simple and painless response. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I've said countless times these past weeks. And you know what? I've meant it every time. I really have appreciated the expression of fellow feeling. I really have appreciated people's use of a compassionate shorthand that lets them off having to say something original and lets me off having to talk about how I'm feeling or go into detail about how it all came about. My parents were unique and irreplaceable. My father, Alan, was a meticulous fine Finnish carpenter and a lover of the Rolling Stones. My mother, Noel, was a superb organizer, a dauntless traveler, and an eternal champion of the underdog. That these two people should have left the world before their daughter is now as commonplace as winter snow in mid-coast Maine, where they lived. As a conservative, I should have known better. It has taken many generations to refine the words of bereavement to an elegant sufficiency. I now understand that there's no need to come up with a custom-designed remark when someone dies. What sounds like a platitude will do nicely. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more. Thank you for listening.